One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Molly Antipal. Her debut short story collection, The Un-Americans, was longlisted for the 2014 National Book Award and was a finalist for the Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers Award, the New York Public Library Young Lions Fiction Award, and was a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree. The Un-Americans explores a diversity of characters shaped by the events of history. The stories take place around the world and feature an absentee father, a young Israeli journalist, a young man just out of military service in Israel, art collectors, unfaithful spouses, and communist revolutionaries. The stories span from World War II era to present day. Jewish identity, history, and characters are at the heart of the Un-Americans. I began the interview by asking Antipol if she grew up very religious. I grew up very culturally Jewish in the way that, um, you know, Jewish politics and Jewish culture and Jewish history was, was stuff that was always talked about at home. Um, but I also came from a like a pretty leftist family, and you know my grandparents were really involved in the Communist Party, and so there was just like not a lot of religion in the house. Um, you know, in fact, like you know, no religion at all. So all of that was was really separate to me and stuff that I learned about as I got older. But I always felt very Jewish still in my house. When you came to write this collection of stories, the Un-Americans. All of the stories involve different points of view and different characters. They take place all over the world from going back to the old country in the Ukraine to people from um, whose history is in Belarus to Israel to America and back. What was on your mind when you started writing these stories? Because they're not your typical short story. I think, to be honest, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with the book the funny thing with stories is that, you know, you just work so intensely on one. Um, and and with each story, I mean, I would say maybe with like the first six stories that I wrote with the book, I was thinking about them so much 
on an individual basis that I, I didn't think about how they would all connect thematically. And it was honestly something that I worried a lot about, um, you know, because so many collections that I that I really love and I, and I had, you know, grown up admiring and sort of come of age admiring are, you know, are so directly linked by voice or, you know, or one character, or, you know, or a specific place. And I knew that, that that wasn't something that I was interested in doing. And I just had this fear that, that the stories might, um, like, I, I couldn't figure out what the connective tissue was. And I thought, you know what, I'm just not going to pressure myself. I'm just going to write these stories that I really want to write and that feel so urgent to me. And then, and then I'll, and then I'll figure it out. And it was so interesting. I think it was, you know, I was a little more than halfway done with the collection and I was like, oh, wow, they're not linked by, you know, by character or voice or place, but instead they seem to be linked by this question that I, without even realizing it, had been obsessing over. And the question was, you know, what happens when, you know, the thing that you've dedicated your life to loses relevance in the course of world events? And what do you sort of do with yourself after that? And and once I understood that that was the question that um that would put these stories together, then I was able to you know with that in mind finish the collection. You know, all of these stories, in a way, even the ones that are present day, have this feeling of oldness to me and the past. And so many of these are about the past and other times. What do you think it was about you that when you finally put your pen to your page or your started typing? that this is sort of the tropes that came out of you? I'm not sure. I, I do know that, you know, ever since I was little, my family's kind of laughed at me for, um, you know, for seeming, you know, they would always say, oh, you're an old soul. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a compliment, but really it might mean like, why are you so obsessed with these really dark periods of history that you didn't live through? There was always just that kind of pressing question for me, even when I was younger. Like, I just I just wanted to hear these stories, and I was so curious about um you know, about all these time periods before I was born. And, and I've forgotten about this. My mom reminded me that, you know, that when I was young, I would just find her old high school yearbooks and just sort of like obsessively, I would just pour over them for hours and hours and I would make up stories about all the people in her yearbook. And there was just this thing about like wanting to understand these time periods and these people who I never would have had the chance to meet and these parts of history that I just didn't get to live through. That's just always been so interesting to me. And I think that especially writing about somewhat contemporary history, you know, like, the, you know, the earliest story in the book, you know, it, it, it's still within the century. And so there's something about that where I love thinking about the ripples when I'm writing of, you know, of how something that happened in the 1950s can feel so, so present today. You know, like with a lot of the McCarthy era stories, it was so interesting to finish the book. And once the book was already, you know, I, I think it had already gone to the copy editor and it was out of my hands. And then we had all this new information about Snowden. And it was so interesting just to kind of, for me, sort of just as a person, but also as a writer, to just think about these ripples in history and, you know, and in our contemporary life. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Molly Antipol, author of the short story collection, The Un-Americans. I noticed a lot of your stories in The Un-Americans included a dead spouse. Oh, wow. That's Again, no one has ever asked me that, and I did not, I had not realized that myself. Does that sound right, though? That does sound right. I, I don't know why that is. I, I, again, I think that I just, writing feels like this thing, when, when I'm doing it, I'm not, it, it, I'm not aware of what I'm doing. Like, it just sort of, it sort of takes over, and for the, you know, the year, the year and a half that I'm writing a story, it's just, it's, it's just sort of like what makes sense for these characters. Um, But I do think that, I've found that, 
the things that I'm the most afraid of in my life are the things that um, I really want to write about because I because once I'm able to write about it and I'm able to create a narrative out of it and I'm able to create something artistic and hopefully you know something that feels valuable to me and to other people then it's almost like I've been able to control this thing that I'm totally afraid of through language and through structure. And so, you know, I think that, you know, that is certainly something that I'm, you know, that I'm really afraid of. Like, just, just, this, I mean, just, just the fear of, of, you know, of losing the people closest to you is, you know, for, I mean, obviously for all of us, it's just the most horrifying um, thing to think about. And, you know, and just as I get older and, you know, and just like everyone else as you know, as I, you know, lose people who I love and who are close to me, there is that, that fear of like, how, 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 how do we deal with this? And, and for me, it really is by writing stories and by reading. I also think that getting married, it was something that I thought about a lot more, you know, just sort of like, wow, here's this person that, you know, who I love so much and who I'm planning to devote my life to, you know, you know, we're, we're going to do this together. And so it's like, it's, it's sort of like sometimes the, the things that feel the most beautiful and exciting can also feel the most terrifying and vulnerable. When you start a story, because these are all very different stories with, to me, very different premises. Do you start with an image? How do you begin to get into the world of your stories? It is. It's almost always with an image, and it's a strange image that I can't shake. Like, um, I think with one of the stories, I had an image of a, you know, of a woman, you know, sort of jumping off a big rock into some, you know, beautiful pool of water in a foreign country. And I thought, okay, this is really interesting. I'm going to write toward that image. And then, of course, that image and that woman and that rock and that water, like, none of it made it into the story. But I just, I just sort of need these jumping off points. And um, so it almost always starts with a sort of like a strange but incredibly alluring image that, um, again, like never, never end up in the story. Or it's just, it's just sort of the rhythm of someone's voice. Like once I can get the music of someone's voice, then I feel like a story can really start to pick up because I'm understanding who that character is and, and how they think and how they speak. The stories that, that don't work for me are the ones when I, you know, when I come up with a concept or an idea about what I want to write. So, you know, if I think, okay, I really want to write about this time period and these people who are involved in this, you know, in, in, in this thing, you know, you know, in this country, like whenever I try to do those kinds of stories, they just feel engineered and it feels very much like I'm trying to be clever with the reader and I'm trying to show off some research that I'm interested in. And so all of those stories ended up on the cutting room floor. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So let's talk about this short story where you started with this image. A Difficult Phase is a short story where the main character is Talia and she is in Israel and she is a journalist and she used to have a better job. She's working for kind of like some cheap weekly in the town, but she used to be a foreign correspondent and she's back and she's kind of lamenting her life and she meets a man at the cafe named Tomer and they just sort of start this relationship. Tomer is a widower and has a child and it's sort of about her decision if she should be with him or not. He's not the type of guy she really would go for, but there's something about him that she likes. So tell me how you got from a woman jumping into a pool to that story. That's such a great description of it. And I and I really don't know how I got from the woman jumping into the pool to this woman, you know, being back in Israel in a cafe. I think that while I was writing, I just kept following that image. And it was an image of, of Talia. And yet, I, of course, at that moment, in that moment, I didn't know it was Talia and I didn't know what she did. But it was just that feeling that, that I think I've had so much in my life of feeling so incredibly happy when I'm in a different country and I'm completely alone and I'm, and I just feel so free and that feeling of just being outdoors and, you know, and no one can contact you and, you know, and you might not even speak the language and just that, those are those feelings of utter bliss that I felt in my own life. And I, and I wanted to write toward that, that just like incredible feeling of feeling kind of that, that free and that open to whatever's going to come next. And as I wrote toward that image, I thought a lot about, um, I started to think about about this character and you know who she was and how she got there, and and then I started thinking about what was stopping her and what it was getting in her way now. And so, you know, the idea that um you know that journalism is changing and she's lost her job and everything is just sort of falling apart all around her and she has to go back home, um felt kind of very painful to me, but also so interesting to write about. And what was really interesting about that story is that this was this was the hardest. I mean, all of the stories were really hard. All of the stories took, you know, at least a year or a year and a half to get right. And this story, I think, took a couple of years. And it was because, you know, one probably because it's it it it's closer to home than a lot of the other ones. You know, it's you know a narrator who's close to me in age, and she's also a writer, and she's trying to figure out. Um, you know, her writing career versus, you know, starting a family and just sort of all of these questions that I, you know, was, um, had been wrestling with during the time that I was writing it. But what also seemed really interesting and complicated to me was the more that I wrote this character of Tomer, the more I really liked him and the more sympathetic and interesting and complicated he seemed. And so I thought, okay, this is a really tangled and messy situation because it might not be so bad if this relationship works out and she stays in Israel. And so that felt fascinating to me. Like the more tangled that I made the story, it was both very frustrating for me to to write about these characters who were becoming more and more real to me, um, but it was also incredibly exciting to think about their situation. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Molly Antipole, author of the short story collection, The Un-Americans. 
I'd like to talk about your short story, Retrospective. Basically, the story is that there's a grandmother figure named Eva Kaplan in the family who lives in Israel, and she's a huge art collector, especially of communist artists and Russian artists, in particular painters. And she has this huge collection, and then she dies, and her family's in America, and she leaves all the paintings to the Jerusalem Museum and all the money to charity and nothing to her family. But they, someone from her family has to go. And so Boaz, who is her grandson-in-law, her granddaughter is Mira, who left Boaz while she's pregnant. And so Boaz goes and kind of relives his relationship with Mira and how they met because Boaz is Israeli. And one of the questions that he ponders about why Mira left is if she knows too much about him. And I was wondering about that question. Do you think you can say too much to your partner? He's sort of worried that he revealed maybe some of the darker, more questionable parts or more insecure parts of himself to her. And that was one of the reasons for the downfall. Yeah, I mean, that was something that I thought so much about when I was writing this story. I was, it was, this was the last story. It's the last story in the book, but it's also the last story that I wrote. And, um, and it's the story, and maybe because of that, it's still the story. I, I still think about the story, and I think about these problems that these characters had. And it just, it was so, um, it felt so fascinating and also just so heartbreaking for me to, you know, to think about relationships and what it's like to, you know, initially fall in love with someone and you just feel like you're just seeing the best side of this person and they're seeing the best side of you and it's it's so incredible and what it's like to to sort of ease into a relationship where you start to feel like, okay, this is this is unconditional and now I can really be myself and suddenly all of the, you know, the ugly and the insecure and the, you know, and the petty and the neurotic and all that stuff, like all those things come out and that person sees those things more than anyone else in the world. And what is it? And, and I think for me, like it can feel so gratifying to know that I have these, you know, these people in the world who I just know, will love me and they'll love me unconditionally and, and, and I love them unconditionally. But just the feeling of like thinking of feeling so safe in something and then realizing like, no, this person is sped up and this person is, this person has seen too much and they want to leave. That to me felt so terrifying. That felt so terrifying um, to think about. And that was one of the reasons that I wanted to write about it. And I think it's also, you know, this time in my life, um, you know, where a lot of my friends are, you know, we're getting married and some of them are starting to have kids and, and some of them are now also starting to get, you know, and then a couple of them are starting to to get divorced. And so just thinking about sort of what it's like to be, you know, to be at this place in your life and, and, and feel so safe in something and realize like, no, actually it's, um, it's actually a really dangerous place to be in. So I think almost all of your characters are Jewish. I'm just wondering about your thoughts about Jewish fiction and is that, fair to say about your fiction? What does that mean? What does that mean today compared to maybe 70 years ago? It makes sense to me when people say that this is a Jewish book of stories. Um, You know, I've also heard that this is, you know, I've I've heard that I write Jewish fiction. I mean, it's one of these things where I wrote a book and I didn't know how anyone would perceive it and I just put it out in the world. And so, um, so any of the labels, like they've actually all made sense to me, even if I didn't have them in mind when I was writing the book. So, you know, I've heard a lot that um, that this is a, a Jewish book of stories. I've also heard that it's um, a political book or it's a historical book um, or it's, 
or it's international, like, and all of those things make sense for, um, for what the book is. And I think for me, uh, I wasn't self-consciously trying to make it a Jewish book, but it's just, you know, it's just who I am. And it's a lot of my, you know, my concerns and my background and, um, you know, and, and the fact that I spend so much time in Israel, I think all of that just kind of came into the book without me trying directly to, to write on specific Jewish themes. You know, but, but I will say that, you know, but that, that so many of the writers who have been the most important to me are, are Jewish writers, and, you know, and I've just connected to them in so many ways. So, you know, my favorite writer in the world is, is Grace Paley, and I remember reading Grace Paley for the first time I was in college, and I thought, oh, my God, like, I've never... I had never before read in a story like the voices that I had just grown up hearing. Like I just felt like the dialogue and the concerns of her characters and even the rhythms of the speech just so captured the voices of the people of so many of the people in my family. And it was utterly, it was just kind of mind-boggling to, to you know to, to read a writer just brilliantly render these people. Um, and, and and that was really thrilling for me. Um, Cynthia Ozick is a, another really important writer to me. I think that she's just so intelligent, and her work is so equally character and idea driven. And and with her books, I just remember it's just that feeling that I had. Also, I started reading her in college, where I just thought, oh, okay, like this just this just appeals to me and sort of speaks to me on so many different levels. Um, you know, and I feel that way about you know not all, but a lot of a lot of Roth and. Um, and Malamud was a really, really important writer to me. I think his stories are just so perfect. And so I was able to understand so much about structure and so much about, you know, about voice from him. You know, and I can go on and on, but I think that, I think that maybe the difference is that for a lot of those writers, you know, you know, for, you know, for Grace Paley or for Bello or for, you know, or for Singer, there's a feeling that they're, that they're really writing about sort of like old country versus new country. And there's that feeling of, um, that in some ways Jewish fiction equals immigrant fiction. You know, you think about the way that, you know, Roth writes about, you know, about, about Newark or Bella's writing about Chicago or Malma's writing about Brooklyn. And all of those places have just changed so drastically since then that, that um, yeah, that I feel like the Jewish writers of my generation are just doing something incredibly different. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Oh, sure. Um, I... I will read from one of my favorite story collections, which is Lost in the City by Edward T. Jones. And to be honest, I love all of his stories. Um, both of his story collections have been so enormously important to me, um, you know, ever since I first started trying to write. Um, and I'll just read a short section from a story called Marie. Every now and again, as if on a whim, the federal government people would write to Marie Della Vaux Wilson in one of those white stampless envelopes and tell her to come into their place so they could take another look at her. They, the Social Security people, wrote to her in a foreign language that she had learned to translate over the years, and for all the years she had been receiving the letters, the same man had been signing them. Once, because she had something important to tell him, Marie called the number of the man, always put at the top of the letters, but a woman answered Mr. Smith's telephone and told Marie he was in an all-day meeting. Another time she called, and a man said Mr. Smith was on vacation. And finally, one day, a woman answered and told Marie that Mr. Smith was deceased. The woman told her to wait, and she would get someone new to talk to about her case. But Marie thought it bad luck to have telephoned a dead man, and she hung up. What I love about, about this story and about this opening is that I feel like he just is able to pack 
a novel's worth of, of heartbreak into a single story. And I think that um, he just consistently writes about um, history and politics in this really brilliant and nuanced way. And in particular, the way that he just captures Washington, D.C. over and over, I just find, like, I, I just... I, I just find it completely brilliant. And, you know, and in this paragraph that I just read, um, I love how matter-of-fact the voice is, and I love the calmness with which he, you know, introduces all of his characters and and the story's main situation, which works so well because the story ends up being incredibly dramatic and shocking and and heartbreaking, and yet there's something about this coolness that he maintains that I just think is it just works so well. And and the last thing that I'll say about this paragraph and about um and about the story is that, and this is something that I that I think about so much when I'm writing is that he he treats every one of his characters, whether it's you know his protagonist or or a side character, he just treats every single person he writes about with so much respect and compassion and. He doesn't seem interested in whether or not, um, you know, a character is likable or unlikable or sympathetic or unsympathetic. He's just interested in making them real people. And that, to me, is just the most important thing that a writer can do. Can you read a passage from something you wrote? Maybe it was something that was hard to write or change from the first draft. I will just read the very opening of The Quietest Man. And the reason I want to read the opening is because that was a, it was, I mean, all, honestly, all, you know, all openings are hard to write, but this was a tricky one because I just had to figure out my character to annex and then rewrite it. So this is The Quietest Man from the beginning. The news was waiting when I came home from class. My daughter had sold a play. Not the kind she'd put on as a girl with a cardboard stage and paper bag puppets, but a real one off Broadway with a set designer and professional actors one of whom would portray me, because this was, Daniela said in her breathless phone message, a play about our family. I set down my briefcase, stuffed with my students' blue books, and hit rewind. Then I called Katka. She's 24, I said. So? So when we were her age, we were living under Hushock, and we're not writing autobiographical plays. Your fatherly pride astounds me. I wondered how the wife I had known when Daniela was first born the quiet, sunken woman who read the Czech newspapers in the library every morning and then wrote long letters to her mother in Prague, letters Katya had known would be swallowed by security, could have become this confident voice on the line. I'm just suggesting, I said, that Daniela may not know what she's getting into. Well, Katya said, she's the one with the play, and you're an aging man who begins sentences with when we were her age. Uh, so that's the opening of The Quietest Man. And uh, what was what was interesting for me and tricky for me uh, when writing this opening was one, I think phone conversations are way harder um, to write, especially at the beginning of a story than uh, face-to-face conversations because all you get is tone and dialogue. And I knew that, you know, here's this, this narrator who is totally isolated in Maine and is totally, is completely lonely. So it makes sense that his connection would only be over the phone. Um, and so what I really had to figure out really early on in the story when writing this opening was just what was happening for both, or actually for all three, all three of the main players in the story, what was happening for them and what were their intentions and how were they going to, you know, what were they going to offer up in a phone conversation and what were they going to withhold? And so um, it was interesting for me to really think about what would be happening tonally and what the dynamic would be between him and his ex-wife in the moment that he calls 
and what she really thinks about him and how she really feels about this play and just all of the sort of messy familial stuff. I kind of had to have it in my mind and to really understand where these characters were in that present moment of the phone call for me to be able to write that opening. Where do you write? Honestly, anywhere. I don't, um, you know, I don't have, a, you know, a special desk or a lucky pen or, you know, or anything like that or, you know, or even really an office space. Um, you know, right now I've been writing at the kitchen table. Um, I have, I love my dog a lot and she's not allowed in coffee shops. So I just like to be with her when I'm writing. Um, I, you know, and, and I love to travel. I, you know, I was able to, to travel and do research for a lot of these stories through, you know, through different grants or different, um, teaching gigs in other countries. And I found that, um, that I, that one of the things I love so much about being a writer is that all I need is a laptop. So, you know, a lot of, I, I got a lot of work done, you know, with this book, um, you know, just being in different places and, you know, in, in hotel rooms where I was just completely by myself and knew no one else in, in a country or, you know, a lot of times on international flights. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, I go to the woods a lot. I, um, you know, I like to take my dog and I go about um, an hour and a half north of San Francisco. Um, there's a little cabin. A, a friend of mine lets me work in this, like, very small um uh, cabin in a town called Inverness near Point Reyes and it's great and there's no you know I mean there's like you know no plumbing or anything like that and it's just me and my dog and I just I, I just work and I'm so happy when I'm there and I'm just can just be in the woods all day and that's just that's just what clears my head more than anything else. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I, sh- I show everything to my husband he's you know he sort of sees everything paragraph by paragraph sometimes even sentence by sentence I have a couple of friends I teach with at Stanford who, um, whose writing I really like. I, I just really admire, and so we trade work, and that's been great. And those people have been my readers for, um, for a long time. Um, let's see, that's um, so. My husband is a writer. His name's Kanan Tige, and the people I um, consistently give my work to um, are a story writer named um, Kirsten Valdez Quaid and Skip Horak and Sarah Frisch. Uh, those are three people I just, um, I gave like, I think basically the entire book to, and I really trust their opinions. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, I think I'm just so used to it by now. Um, and that's something I talk about with my students a lot because they're, you know, a lot of them are starting for the first time in their lives to, you know, to, to you know, to send out their first story and, you know, and they get nervous about it. And I think that, you know, I mean, I've been sending stories out for, God, like half my life at this point and, or maybe not that long, but, you know, almost half my life, and I'm just so used to it, and I, and, and the rejection just never goes away, and it's more that I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised when I get something, you know, if I find out that I got a fellowship, or I find out that a story was taken somewhere, I'm incredibly happy, but I just sort of make myself, the moment that I submit something, I just, or I submit something, or apply for something, or, you know, whatever it is, I just force myself to forget about it the moment that the application's out there. And what is your favorite word? One word I loved when I was writing um, was malarkey, and I think it was because it was something that the older generation of my, I would hear people in my family um, use that word, and even before I knew what it meant when I was little, I loved the way that it sounded. It just sounded to me, it had such a gorgeous sound to it that I loved it, and I remember feeling a lot of joy when I realized that it could fit in a story and I could have someone use that word. Um, But I would say that the funny thing about having a favorite word as a writer is that it's kind of a curse. And once I was finished with my book and, um, you know, and kind of going through it and thinking of them not as individual stories, but as how an entire book would be read, um, oftentimes I would find favorite phrases that had made their way into more than one story. 
the favorite words that would appear in like four different stories, and then I have to, you know, have to get rid of it. So I think it's both wonderful to love a word and and can be kind of dangerous with a story collection because they can reappear. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Molly Antipal, author of the short story collection, The Un-Americans. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.